It's Tuesday, August 6th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Addressing the nation after shootings in El Paso, Texas and Dayton, Ohio, President Trump vowed to take action and called for bipartisan cooperation to respond to recent mass shootings. He blamed mental illness and video games for glorifying violence, but made no mention of limits on the sale of guns. Marisa Fernandez, reporter at Axios, joins us for how the president wants to combat the problem. Next, FBI Special Agent Scott Gariola is nearing retirement, but before he goes, he is asking for the public's help to find 12 fugitives that have escaped justice. These people were all accused of committing violent crimes or murder, and most are believed to have escaped to Mexico. Scott Gariola joins us to talk about his own 12 most wanted list. Finally, Amazon's home security company Ring has made partnerships with local law enforcement all across the country, and the result is starting to look like an Amazon Ring police surveillance network. Amazon gives local police Ring products, the police encourage adoption of the Ring platform, and then people give police access to their doorbell cams. Carolyn Haskins, writer at Vice's Motherboard, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. It is too easy today for troubled youth to surround themselves with a culture that celebrates violence. We must stop or substantially reduce this, and it has to begin immediately. Mental illness and hatred pulls the trigger, not the gun. Joining us now is Marisa Fernandez, reporter for Axios. Thanks for joining us, Marisa. Thank you so much. President Trump addressed the nation after two mass shootings that happened over the weekend. They happened both within 24 hours of each other. Since then, we found out that two more people had died in El Paso. So that brings the total to 31 dead in both shootings in in El Paso, Texas and Dayton, Ohio. The president said that we must condemn racism, bigotry and white supremacy, something that he has not really said before in that capacity. And he says hate has no place in America. What else did the president say addressing these two mass shootings? You're definitely correct. And he was pretty quick to condemn white supremacy. But in both cases that he's kind of addressed the public once in Twitter and the other on live television in a um, uh, written statement, uh, the bottom line is that President Trump did not introduce any significant gun control, uh, gun control actions. And the Democrats are really pushing for that right now. So what Donald Trump did say today is that he is most likely not going to include any specifics, but he did kind of condemn what we consider uh, some kind of right-leaning or even Republican um, talking points uh, that have to do with societal factors uh, related to gun violence, but not necessarily gun violence itself. So a couple examples of that that Donald Trump uh, addressed today was that he wanted to condemn the glorification of violence in our society, essentially just citing how violent video games um, are kind of a stressor on gun violence in America, which researchers have been proven not to be true. And he's also linked reforming mental health laws. And he really tried to bridge that correlation between mental health and uh, gun violence. And so lots of these talking points that he spoke on today 
really only have to do with cultural factors, um, but not really anything that has to do with significant gun control change, which people would consider and would agree with, which are background checks, limiting age restrictions to people who um, raising the age limit for people who want to buy guns, et cetera. Yeah, he mentioned the background checks, definitely. He also mentioned possibly passing red flag laws to prevent those who could be a danger to society from obtaining guns. In the case in Ohio, you know, these are stories after the fact, obviously, but classmates came forward saying that he had uh, hit lists uh, for men and rape lists for women. Uh, maybe, you know, these things could be used in some type of red flag scenario to limit him from getting guns. Part of the problem is that in these two cases, even the case of a week ago at the Gilroy Garlic Festival, all the guns were obtained legally. And in Ohio, the shooter had this hundred round drum that was attached to the gun. So he had a ton of bullets to be working with. So all the things that the president was mentioning could be true or could be helpful, but people want to get to the meat of it. They want stricter gun control laws. Absolutely. You make a really good point. For how disturbing and horrific these events have happened, you know, over the weekend and what this country has been experiencing all through 2019 and basically probably through most people's young adult or adult lives, the Trump administration is creating a strong association to the public between mental illness and mass shootings. His administration and he himself have, you know, made lots of comments over the past weekend talking about, you know, these are very sick minded people. These are people, you know, he quoted today, I quote, mental illness and hatred pulls the trigger and not the gun. And the FBI has data to back up that only a portion of active shooters in the U.S. have been diagnosed with a mental illness. For what President Trump has come forward and spoken on, a lot of it is kind of just like up in the air. And you're exactly right when you say that nothing's really concrete. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting thing. You say these people have mental illness. Anybody in their right mind, if somebody sees somebody that attacks people like that, mass shootings, you're going to say, yeah, these people are sick. These people have problems. But is it a mental health problem like schizophrenia, things like that? And I think that's kind of the difference. I think the president kind of loops them all in together. And there's a lot of other factors. The president did uh, allude to it also. You know, he mentioned the thing about video games. And while that might not directly correlate to violence, the Internet, these places on the Internet where people are sharing the manifestos, people are radicalizing themselves in it. I think the Christchurch shooter in New Zealand said I've been on these websites for like a year and a half and it drove me to this type of thing. And that's kind of, I think this that is could be a big problem is, you know, where these people are congregating on the Internet. The last thing I just wanted to ask, there have been some gun control measures that were passed in the House. There's no indication that the president would support any of that stuff. But this has all been stalled in the Senate. There's a few different bills that have been passed that would address background checks and even uh, some red flag laws. Absolutely. Congress is in recess right now for the month of August, and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer have really tried to rally the party and mobilize in pointing to how the Senate has stalled these bills. So two bills had been passed um, earlier in 2019. Specifically, there was a universal background check bill that was passed in February. This news cycle right now is not going to go away because we still don't know that much about both investigations, depending on who's injured, you know, death tolls may or may not still go up. So people are 
are really have their eyes on Congress right now. Marisa Fernandez, reporter at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I always remember the ones that got away more so than the ones I caught. You know, I've had some pretty high profile captures, but it's still it's the ones that gnaw at you or the ones that got away. Joining us now is FBI Special Agent Scott Gariola. Thanks for joining us, Scott. Thanks for having me on. Scott, you've had a, a long career in the FBI. You're nearing the end of your career, but you just started a new initiative to help catch 12 fugitives that have evaded justice. But this is the first time that the FBI has made a public appeal like this in catching such a large group of fugitives. Tell us a little bit about the reasoning behind this initiative. Sure. Well, everybody's familiar with our 10 Most Wanted Fugitive Program. Right. It's one of the um, greatest publicity and crime-fighting tools the FBI ever developed. But those are 10 separate and distinct investigations that usually originate from 10 different field offices around the country out of our 56. This was uh, just something, you know, I was just kind of thinking that I've got, I probably have about 20 all told fugitives, maybe more, that I believe are in Mexico. So what I did is I wanted to take just a dozen of them and um, kind of work them up and get them to the point where we put all the posters on our website, fbi.gov website. The idea was I knew at some point or another all these fugitives had fled to Mexico. Now, is there a chance somebody came back? Sure. A chance some of them may have died? Yep. I mean, we have a fugitive on the list uh, dating back to 93. So I just wanted to make sure that the drum was tight and I wanted to do this publicity push where we got a reward of $5,000 each. Now, people don't think that's a lot of money. But in Mexico or Central America, that you know, that could be a significant amount. And also, it's you know, I've told people that hey, if information comes in and it's you know doesn't require a lot of digging on our part, you know, maybe we could even negotiate. Now, these are all cases that you worked personally. These yeah, are these all- are all my all my cases. You know, unfortunately, you know, leads you know leads dry up, cases go cold, and I wanted to do this last push on trying to bring closure to some of these cases, not only for myself, but especially with the victim's families. These are all, some may have been gang members, most were not, but they're all victims and are all you know, somebody's child. So Talk a little bit about that, about the closure, because as we mentioned, these are all your cases. You've worked on these for many, many years. And in some cases, a lot of them are murders. These crimes are very gruesome. How does this affect you over the course of your career? I, I always remember the ones that got away more so than the ones I caught. And I've had some pretty high-profile captures, but it's still, it's the ones that gnaw at you or the ones that got away. I mean, it was like this, uh, the Baldomero Barrientos, uh, Benuelos one. I mean, it was a 1993 stabbing of his wife. It happened inside the house. It was a bloody crime scene. It was horrible. Then in 97, the Sal Aguilar case, he shotgunned his ex-girlfriend to death uh, two days before Christmas, right by the, right by the Christmas tree. In, uh, in I believe it was Baldwin Park. It's just, you know, you just remember those things and, uh, you know, they gnaw at you over the course of your career and you, you want to get them captured. So you try and become innovative and do whatever you can. That's what brings us here today with this, this dozen fugitives. Were you ever uh, in close contact with these guys? Like, how do they escape? And then and then the, hmm. the follow up is if no. they're in Mexico, how do you, you work with uh, officials there to catch the actual criminal? No, I mean, we, I don't have, there's no close contact between us and the fugitives. It's just, you know, we get, we get a call from the homicide detective. Once he identifies or he, he or she identifies the suspect, 
Uh, we have 10 males in this case, two females. Once they're identified, then that's when they get a warrant enough to you know, arrest someone. Then we get involved. You know, we have to make sure the case is pretty good and to either deport or extradite them out of Mexico. And for that process, it's kind of a, it's a two different approaches. If they're U.S. citizens, which Ten of the uh, fugitives on the list are U.S. citizens. If we arrest them in Mexico, they can be summarily deported back to the U.S. by the Mexican Immigration Department. But if the person is not a U.S. citizen and they flee back to Mexico, then the person has to be extradited. So that's more a lengthy process, time-consuming. We have the pictures. We have descriptions of the crimes that they've committed. Mm -hmm. If anybody sees this and recognizes anything and they have some type of information, how can they get in contact and, and help you further these investigations? Great. Yeah. So it's uh, if you're, if the person's in the United States and they provide information, we've already we've already been running down tips on some of these fugitives. So uh, they can call. We have a number, toll free number. It's called eight 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 Can't Hide. C A N T H I D E. Eight 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 Can't Hide. If they're in the U S. Or they can call any FBI office uh, around the United States. If they're overseas, every country overseas is either going to be a U.S. embassy or a U.S. consulate. So in Mexico, we have both. Or they can submit a tip online through our website, fbi.gov. The most important thing is that any information they provide, it, it will be kept confidential. You can remain anonymous. We're not looking for someone to come forward and become a witness in the primary case, the homicide case. We're looking just for information on the fugitive end of it. This is just a tip uh, providing information to locate a fugitive. Well, we'll put a link to this post and where they can see these pictures and get more information on these people on our podcast page. FBI Special Agent Scott Gariola, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on. Please call if you have any kind of questions. You know, everything's negotiable. Thanks. The Ring Neighbors app is a new way for neighbors to connect and share events. Now, when something happens, you can be one of the first to know, helping you stay one step ahead of crime. Together, we can build a smarter, safer community. Welcome to the new Neighborhood Watch. Joining us now is Caroline Haskins, writer at Vice's Motherboard. Thanks for joining us, Caroline. Thanks for having me. We've talked about this before, how Amazon is going into a lot of partnerships with local law enforcement whether it be through their security company Ring or even some other type of facial recognition programs. There at Motherboard, some of your reporting showed that Amazon and Ring have partnered with at least 200 law enforcement agencies around the country, possibly more than that. And what they're doing is they're requiring some of these departments to basically advertise their surveillance cameras in exchange for free Ring products and access to a portal that allows police to request footage from these cameras Tell us a little bit more about this. So I obtained a memorandum of understanding and other contract documents between Ring, which is Amazon's home surveillance company, and the police department of Lakeland, Florida. And the memorandum of understanding requires different things from the, the police department and from Ring. So Ring is required to provide access to this law enforcement neighborhood portal, which is basically an interactive map, and police can use it to see the approximate location of every Ring product in the town and request footage directly from those people. And Ring also has to give the police department 15 free doorbell surveillance cameras, and they also are obligated to offer this discount on Ring cameras based off of the number of people in the city that download Neighbors, which is an accompanying app offered by Ring. In exchange, 
in order to get access to this law enforcement portal and these free cameras, et cetera, there's a clause in this memorandum that requires police to, quote, encourage adoption, close quote, of bring products. So basically, this means that it's a private public agreement between a public law enforcement agency and a private company like Ring. And the result is a completely privatized surveillance network that police have the ability to tap into. They do need permission from the people in order to get the footage, but the extra added step of legal protection from the warrant doesn't exist there. And it exists in this vague, unregulated space in terms of a privatized surveillance network that police have sort of this direct administrative access to. How are police expected to make this engagement with the local community just out and about when they're talking to locals? Or is there like a a broader program that they're using to uh, make this outreach? Part of it is that they're supposed to tell people to download Neighbors and be explicit that if they download this app, then they could have a chance to get a certain ring product. And what certain police departments have done is they do other types of programs like raffles or giveaways and stuff like that in order to make people aware that these products exist. And in terms of the free doorbell cameras, I mean, that's a pretty direct way for police to distribute these products from their own possession to people in their own community. And there's been other reporting, too, that this is so tightly coordinated that even what police officers say about Amazon's ring has to either be scripted or approved by the company themselves. Basically, if they're going to be making posts, say, announcing that they joined neighbors or discussing their partnership in any way whatsoever, um, there has to be sort of email communication between police and ring. And that's why another part of the partnership requires police to assign certain ring-specific roles. These roles, it includes a press coordinator, a social media manager, a community relations coordinator. And these are basically point people within the police department that are responsible for communicating about all things related to the ring partnership to the public. I mean, it's an interesting thing that's happening. A lot of people buy these products thinking you're improving the safety of your home, but you're really getting involved into this Amazon Ring police surveillance network type of thing. There is a campaign from a a group called Fight for the Future, which is giving people the opportunity to reach out to local lawmakers and tell them that they don't want this partnership going on in their communities also. Evan Greer, who's the deputy director for Fight for the Future, she put it really well. Ring's whole pitch to the public is that this would be making communities safer. But, you know, safer for whom? It's important to remember that these are cameras that are proliferating in private spaces. And I did a report a couple of months ago about behavior on Neighbors, which is, again, the Neighborhood Watch app. It operates a lot like Nextdoor, and racial profiling is extremely common on the app. And the app even encourages people to tag people as suspicious or strangers. And, you know, I mean, just given the reality of life in this country, a lot of these people are people of color. Don't only just think about the privacy concerns or these relationships with law enforcement. Think about what type of relationship you want to have with your community and whether these cameras are promoting that type of relationship. Carolyn Haskins, writer at Vice's Motherboard. Thank you very much for joining us. Where can people catch more of your stuff? You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Caroline H-A underscore. And you can also follow Motherboard. It's Vice's tech site, which is just at Motherboard on Twitter. Thank you, Caroline. Thanks for having me. We'll be right back. 
That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Brooke Peterson and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.